Good morning. It is a real joy to be delivering a message from God's Word to you this morning. It's a little sobering. First time my knees are knocking just a little bit to fill this pulpit, but it is a joy nonetheless. I was talking to Jason last week and I said that it's kind of easier for me to think of it as just four or five called worships all put together. And that's been helpful for me, and maybe it'll be helpful for you too. Please turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27. Taking, as the pastor said, taking a small break from Peter, that I'm kind of doing a, a one-off this morning, but our topic will be a familiar one, and that's the reason that our responsive reading came from 1 Peter. So if you're there, I'll be reading from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it is being granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, or, or selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your spirit, you would be at work in your children this morning to hear your word proclaimed, that your spirit would work, and as you promised, conform us to the image of your son. We pray these in Jesus' name. Philippians is one of my favorite epistles. We're actually introduced to this city in Acts during Paul's second missionary journey. Paul is directed by vision to come to Macedonia. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 12, Luke tells us that they came to Philippi, which is a leading city of Macedonia and a Roman colony. This is the place where Paul heals a demon-possessed girl and is thrown in jail for it with Silas. It's the time when Silas, Paul and Silas are singing hymns and an earthquake breaks open the cells. And then when Paul and Silas save the jailer's life by not escaping, he comes to faith with his whole family. And this story in Acts actually tells us something important about Philippi that becomes a part of our lesson this morning. And that is that Philippi is a Roman colony. You remember may remember that Paul is a Roman citizen and had certain rights in the Roman Empire. You may recall that the leaders of Philippi take his citizenship pretty seriously when they have him beaten uh, because he was a Roman citizen. Wherever Paul went, it could be an advantage to be a Roman citizen, but especially in a Roman colony. Philippi was a little slice of Rome in the middle of Macedonia. Outside the walls, it was Macedonia, 
but inside the walls, it was Roman. And the average Philippian would have been proud of this aspect of their city that kind of set them apart. When Paul writes this letter, it has been roughly a dozen years since the gospel has reached Philippi, and probably five years since the last time he's seen them. Paul is writing to them from imprisonment in Rome around the year 62 AD. The church has found out about his imprisonment and has sent a man named Epaphroditus with a gift to support him and aid him while he is in custody. So that leads us to two more things that we can say about the Philippians. One is that they were a very generous church, even though they weren't a very wealthy church, and they had a very warm relationship with Paul. This letter is one of the warmest letters from Paul that we have in the New Testament. This is a letter to acknowledge them and thank them for their gift, but it's far more than that. Epaphroditus has apparently given Paul concerning news that there is persecution from the world around them and there are factions from within the church. And Paul is writing them with joy, but also with concern for an instruction regarding how the church needs to live in light of what they're facing. So this morning, I want us to take a look at a few of the main points of Philippians through a certain lens. And that lens is citizenship. Keep your place in chapter 1 and turn to chapter 3, verse 20. This is kind of an overview lesson, so we'll be flipping around in Philippians a lot, but mostly just in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. What a glorious passage. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is a citizenship like no other. It has been granted to every believer in Jesus Christ at the moment of their conversion. It is a citizenship that gives rights and privileges. It gives promises and an inheritance. It gives us a relationship to a king. And it also gives us a new kind of relationship with one another in the kingdom. Chapter 3, verse 20 is an important part of this letter because it's not actually the first time that he's talked about citizenship. I want you to turn back to chapter 1, verse 27. I want you to see those first words. You see in chapter 1, verse 27, it begins with manner of life. And that word is the verb form of the noun citizen that we see in chapter 3, verse 20. It's translated as manner of life because it's literally the behavior of a citizen or even citizenship. He's saying... That your, head is, that your heavenly citizenship should be lived out a certain way. If we keep on reading in chapter 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, your new citizenship should be worthy of the gospel, and thinking of chapter 3, because of your citizenship, 
you are waiting a savior. Paul begins his instructions to them with citizenship, and he closes his instruction with citizenship. He wants them to see their lives through the lens of heavenly citizenship. And this is an idea that would be especially relevant to the Philippians. Remember, they're living out Roman citizenship in the middle of Macedonia. And Paul is saying, live out your true citizenship as a kingdom of the citizen of heaven in a crooked and twisted generation. It's not just a message for the Philippians. It's a message for us as well. Because if I forget my true citizenship, I'll miss out on a vital encouragement in my life, and the church will fail to live out the result of the gospel. The remainder of our lesson, I want to draw your attention to four ways that we can live out our citizenship that Paul addresses between chapter 1 and chapter 3. You might be thinking, Lance, are you really cherry-picking four points from three of the richest chapters in the New Testament? And I am. <laughs> I'm not really too concerned about the pace I'm setting because I don't have to do this very often. <laughs> what are those points? The first point is this. Citizenship commends the gospel. The second point, citizenship creates unity and service. Third point, citizenship combats sin and selfishness. And our fourth point, citizenship anticipates Christ's return. First, citizenship commends the gospel. One of the first things that Paul does in his letter is something that you might do in a letter you write, and that's he catches them up on how things are going. It wouldn't seem like good news to have to tell your friends what life in prison is like, but Paul wants to tell them how the gospel is being proclaimed. Paul's priority is the gospel, and even though he has been in chains, there has been opportunity to tell others the good news about salvation through faith in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then in just a few verses later, in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul sees his circumstances as a way that God is using to advance the gospel. For him, it involved imprisonment and even people who were trying to harm him by preaching the gospel themselves. When Paul is telling them how things are going with him, he's also encouraging them to think of the gospel as a priority in the same way. And just like Paul, the opportunities may come through persecution. In chapter 20, in, in Verse 29, chapter 1, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Even though it wasn't going to be easy, his instruction for, for them was to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Have you ever thought about what it means to say live in a manner worthy? He's talking about what your, the character of your life is like. And Paul says that your life should match up with or have the same worth as the gospel of Christ. Whatever the gospel is like, that's what your life should be like. It should measure up. I find it interesting that we have four letters from Paul that are written from this imprisonment. Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. And Paul uses the idea of worthiness in the three that he wrote to those churches. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Well, what's your calling? In Ephesians, I think the simplest way to say it is that your calling is only to bring glory to God. What about Colossians? Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. It seems like letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, walking worthy of our calling, walking worthy of the Lord, was on Paul's mind while he was imprisoned in Rome. It's an idea that's vitally connected to our identity as citizens of the kingdom of his beloved son. When we think of ourselves as belonging to another kingdom and that we are here to represent that kingdom to the culture around us, we think of our circumstances differently and will live differently because of it. We have bigger and better things to be about. There is no higher calling than to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. There isn't anything more important for the church to be about than to share the gospel with the world. And an important part of the way that the gospel is delivered is to display to the world what God has accomplished through the gospel. Along with a clear verbal message, because the gospel must be heard, it must be understood to be believed, the church also has a responsibility to represent the results of the gospel by the way that we live as citizens in the kingdom that the gospel has created. This brings us to our second point. Citizenship creates unity and service. So our first point was citizenship commends the gospel. Second point, citizenship creates unity and service. Chapter 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you uh, or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And shortly after that, at the beginning of chapter two, we have these famous verses. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more important than yourself. 
Paul says that if the Spirit is at work among us and making us more like our Savior, then he's going to accomplish unity among us by leading us to follow the example of our Lord. In one sense, the unity of the church is completely unnatural. It is not caused by our similarities. We don't have the same backgrounds. We don't have the same ethnic origins, the same socioeconomic situations. We're different in all kinds of ways. And that's true not only in this relatively small room, but we also need to remember that there are other churches all over the globe and we're separated by distances and languages. There simply wouldn't be a way that we would naturally display unity because of all of those differences, but we do. But in another sense, we share a unity that is completely natural and built on something that we have in common. Our differences don't make a difference because the gospel has made us family and that's made us fellow citizens. Through the gospel, God has made us all brothers and sisters, very different people, but we have one thing in common. We are all rescued and adopted into God's family. Unity ignores smaller differences because of more important similarities. I'm a Chiefs fan, and so when I run into other Chiefs fans, I always have something to talk about. But here's what I don't do. I don't check the color of their eyes. I don't care if they're brown-eyed or not. Eye color has nothing to do with it. I don't even think about it because there's something more important. When a church lacks unity, the reason is, is there isn't one main thing that's more important to everyone than any other thing. Let me say that again. The reason is that there isn't one main thing that's more important to everyone than any other thing. But I want to get back to the specific way that Paul says unity will be achieved. And that's the humility of each of us counting others as more significant than ourselves. When we do that, we will serve each other. Paul says elsewhere that each one of us has a gift, has a way that we've been given to serve. He calls those gifts of the spirit, spiritual gifts. When I was younger, I heard the term. I thought it meant that it was a gift for me. But the best way to think about it is that you've been given a gift that you can give to others. Your gift is a gift to the church. If we fail to serve, that gift goes ungiven. And the church is lesser for it. Lesser joy, less comfort, less knowledge of our glorious Savior. The idea of considering others needs to include uh, our idea of serving with our gift. Without this mindset, unity will not be found in the church, and we will fall very short of walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul doesn't just say be humble. He also contrasts it with the character that is opposite that, uh, something that you shouldn't have. He says do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. In Paul's writings, it's common for Paul to say, stop doing this and start doing that. Put off this and put on that. And this is the battle against sin that we're all engaged in. And so this is our third point. Citizenship combats sin and selfishness. Seeing our battle with sin through the lens of citizenship can be a great tool for helping us 
resist temptation. Sin has made us stupid. Sin has made us insane. Sin has made us weak. And sin has made us apathetic. When we sin, we're declaring our independence and rebellion from the creator of the universe. We're choosing our own way over the way of an infinitely wise father who loves us and wants the best for us. Does that sound smart to you? Is it smart to think that you know more than God? Sin makes us insane in that we believe reality to be, reality to be something other than what it is. We say we believe in the eternal reality that God has chosen us, placed us in his kingdom, that there is something bigger going on here, that God is bringing himself glory through the story of bringing redemption to a world that has rejected him. We say we believe that, and then by sinning, you're acting as if all of that isn't true. Another word we could use is irrational. When we are irrational, we're ignoring common sense or reason. And sin is the same way. Reality is right there in front of us, but we're going a different way. Sin has made us weak. The effect of sin has broken our body. We simply don't have the strength to serve in a way that a glorious God is worthy of. God is worthy of service and praise lasting for all eternity. But sin has made it so that we lack the years and the strength that our king is due. Sin has made us apathetic. Not only do we lack strength, we lack the zeal that God is worthy of. All of our emotions are intended to give God glory, but sin has made it so that we cannot muster them. How much joy is your salvation worth? It's worth more than I've ever been able to express at any time. There are times that we should be angry in such a way that we don't sin. We should feel tender compassion to a degree that we're never capable of reaching. We should feel a brotherly love towards one another to a far higher degree than we do. The highest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The effect of sin has made it so that there's never been a moment that we fully obeyed that command. Does that make it sound kind of hopeless? But I think understanding that will help us in our fight against, against sin and selfishness. When I'm tempted to sin, knowing that what seems like the best is the moment, at the moment really isn't the smartest thing to do. Because God loves me, I can believe that he has something far better for me. If I don't keep the reality of the kingdom and my place in it as my mindset, I'm likely to place my priorities in a direction that doesn't reflect the true reality of what's happening in the world. We are tempted to be like what we see. It's easy for us to adopt the attitudes and the mindsets of the world that we see around us. It's easy for us to join in the insanity. But remembering that our first identity 
is not with this world, but with his kingdom. Aren't those the words of our Savior? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It will help us in our struggle with sin and selfishness so that we are living out our true citizenship in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation. So through the lens of citizenship, we've looked at citizenship commends the gospel. Citizenship creates unity and service. Citizenship combats sin and selfishness. And now citizenship anticipates Christ's return. Notice how all my other points started with C. And then at my last point, I have anticipates. And that's my amateur status showing through because a real pro can come up with another C word where I, <laughs> I couldn't. And this last point is the point that I really wanted to get to. I think it's the one that really supports the other three. I think it's one of the most encouraging parts of Philippians. When we look at chapter 3 again, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. There is a part of citizenship that is anchored in the here and now. Right now, we are to be living out citizenship in such a way that God is glorified. But our citizenship is also anchored in a glorious future. And we can't really live like citizens here and now if we're not mindful of what we're waiting for. The verses prior to this are contrasting those who aren't part of the kingdom and what they are like. And I think if we look at those verses, it gets us a, a clear picture of what waiting is supposed to be like. So if you look back just a couple verses to chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I have told you, tell you now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, but because we are waiting for a Savior, we walk in a manner worthy of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, but our future is for our sin-affected, weak and apathetic bodies to be transformed to be like his glorious body. No more stupidity, no more insanity, a mind and body fully equipped to worship God to the degree that he is worthy of. How much joy is your salvation worthy of? Buckle up, because one day you are going to experience joy to that degree. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. And that means that they are completely self-centered. But waiting for a savior gives us every reason to be selfless. Waiting for a savior in a glorious future means that you don't have to grasp and claw for lesser things. We're waiting for the best. Imagine you're about to go out on a steak dinner. It's one of my favorite things. And as you should, you eat lightly during the day so that you're nice and hungry 
when you get there. And then right before you go, somebody offers you cold pizza. And if you weren't thinking about that steak, you might say, I'm hungry now. I'll eat some cold pizza. But if you remember that you're about to eat a steak, then that pizza is not so tempting. Our mindset on a future with Christ is our fuel to live out our citizenship right now. When Paul is writing to the Philippians, I think this is one of the main things that he's trying to accomplish for them to set their minds on Christ in this way. Bear with me here because we're going to turn to several verses in Philippians. And my point is to highlight how over and over again, Paul is bringing this future to their minds. In chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless to the day of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Chapter 2, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Chapter 2, verse 19, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may, I may be proud, I do not run in vain or labor in vain. Chapter 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And our verse, chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate blessing of our citizenship is to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is a reality that shapes the way we live. The more deeply we come to know him, the more antici the anticipation of being with him changes our priorities. It changes our behavior. It changes our service in his kingdom and it can even change the way we approach our temptations. Paul wants the Philippians to get to know their Savior in a deeper and deeper way so that they would anticipate his arrival in the way that they should. Think about our steak dinner again. If you don't know how good steak is, then how are you going to anticipate it the way that you should? Maybe my problem is that I don't know how much better steak is than cold pizza. So when the cold pizza comes along, I choose it, and that steak is almost there. Don't think it's by accident that Philippians is one of the best places in the New Testament to ponder the glory of the king of the universe. So as our pastor had in his prayer, I would like for us to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, through the lens of waiting for, anticipating the appearance of our king. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the king we are waiting for. If you don't know that king, if you want to be part of his kingdom, as the pastor said, find someone after the service. Pastor Doug, myself, anybody that you've seen here, be happy to help you know how you can be a citizen in this kingdom. Pastor Nathan has chosen the perfect song for us to continue worshiping with. And after I pray, we're going to sing Almost Home. And that's the exact thought I want to leave you with. Fix your eyes on our king as you await his arrival and live as a citizen in his glorious kingdom. Let's pray. Father, by your spirit, through your word, help us to know our Savior in a deeper and deeper way. So that as citizens, we can bring you the glory that you're due. I pray that your church as a whole would be even more united in our efforts to bring the gospel to the world around us. Help us to serve one another. Help us at all times to remember our identity as citizens of, your, of the kingdom of your beloved son. For it's in his name that we pray.